flipped your outlines over. We're doing the Grace Upon Grace series, and this is our third week on Chapter 4, So, uh, but we're going to eventually call this Chapter 4B. The first week, we're going to just eliminate because it was all review. Uh, last week, we looked at paradigms, and uh, a paradigm is a set of assumptions or concepts or values uh, that that also work out into practices and methodologies that that are that involve a way of viewing reality that is shared by some group of people, usually an academic group of people. And what I'm submitting to us is that there are four great thinking traditions in the history of Christianity: Eastern Christianity, which eventually, by the fifth and sixth century, became known as the Orthodox Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, when we use the word orthodox, it's important to understand that there's orthodox, as we use it, we are an orthodox church in the sense that an orthodox Christian is someone who believes the things that Christians have believed through all the centuries, the major doctrines of scriptures as they've been expressed in, in things like the Nicene and Apostles' Creed. Okay, that's Orthodox Christianity. But Orthodox with a big O is referring to a denomination called the Eastern Orthodoxy. Okay, uh, likewise, Catholic means universal in the sense of uh, the church for the first 11 centuries, uh, 10 and a half really, remained technically one church. Uh, even though there were many nuances of differences between the, the Christianity of the Eastern Empire, the Northern African Coptic Christianity, the Christianity that's now in Lebanon that were called Marianist, uh, the Christianity of the West, which was called the Latin tradition, and by the 5th or 6th century with the, with the assertion that the Pope should be the head among all the bishops, began to be looked at as the Roman Catholic Church. And then uh, even in England, they had a different mass and some different practices than they had in Latin because the, the, the England was always a little bit of a mix of the East and the West, and that had to do with a, an Eastern bishop who was very predominant in England in the, in the fourth century. But with that, I need you to understand, every one of us, whether we realize it or not, we have paradigms about Christianity that we were indoctrinated in by the Christian schools we went to, by the churches we went to, by what's on Christian radio, what's on Christian TV, uh, all those kinds of things. And, uh, well, it's, very, it's down kind of low in here and still seems warm to me. So... Um, we all have those, and more than we realize, those paradigms act like a set of glasses that actually determine when we're reading the Bible what we get out of it. We would say, oh, we're just straight Bible. You hear that a lot. When, In fact, when you hear that, you know that that person's coming from an evangelical or fundamentalist paradigm of Scripture, which is a, a set of ways of looking at Scripture that have developed after the Civil War in America. And so I want to help us with this concept so that you, you can actually maximize what you're getting out of when you, the Scripture when you study the Scripture. If you're aware of the paradigms that are there, it will help you rise above them and get actually more what God intended when he wrote, gave us the Scriptures. Okay, now, does that make sense? 
And uh, those major thinking traditions that I listed, I, I went uh, Eastern, the Western or Latin, uh, then eventually the Reformation, and then uh, after the Civil War developed, the Evangelical or Fundamentalist paradigm. Those four major thinking traditions all have much to contribute and all have much that's questionable. And all of them influence us more than we think, but the ones that we were most raised in or most exposed to will influence us the most. I would say among Protestants today, the evangelical fundamental paradigm is most prominent. Now, there are other less important paradigms. For instance, the evangelical fundamental paradigm rose as a reaction to the Protestant modernist paradigm. The Protestant modernist paradigm was Protestant Christians who began to embrace the ideas of Charles Darwin and apply them to social Darwinism, and they began to embrace the ideas that were started by Julius Wellhausen, known as higher criticism of the scriptures. And they began to say, well, the scripture is only stories. It's not real history. Uh, the miracles can't be trusted. We know miracles don't happen. Uh, it, it became a very natural-minded natural, natural minded paradigm, and even the view of religion was evolutionary. So, of course, the Israelites uh, did these nasty things like wipe out the Canaanites and so forth because they hadn't evolved in their faith as much, and even the idea of modern theism involved in this, these kinds of ideas. So, of course, uh, the Bible presents itself is being revealed from God and having no evolutionary process. It has a developmental process as he is progressively revealing Jesus Christ, the king of his kingdom, and the fullness of the kingdom of God. But it doesn't have an evolutionary process where man is kind of directing it and man is is uh, reinventing God and, and maturing in his views of God and, and all this kind of thing. So fundamentalism and, and, and evangelicalism kind of arose as a, re, as a reaction to that evolutionary way of thinking. Does that make sense? Now, last week we also looked at some historical perspective. I got us through some things about the early church and the, emer the emergence of the split between the East and the West. I'll just remind us of the two most important things there. Um, one is that the early church was predominantly Hebrew-minded apostolic people. The apostles were all Hebrews. And all the New Testament books were either written by an apostle or a disciple of an apostle. And the only writer that was not a Hebrew was the physician Luke, who gave us the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Now, Luke... Uh, used an historical methodology that would be similar to what the Greeks did, but also similar to the Hebrews. That is, he interviewed many people to get the facts straight. And Luke was uh, a, a disciple of the Apostle Peter and his traveling companion up until about halfway through the book of Acts when the Antioch church emerged in, in Acts chapter 12, Luke attached himself to the Antioch church and became a disciple of Paul. And that's why uh, most of the book of Acts focuses on ministries revolving around Peter and the Jerusalem apostles and those who went out from Jerusalem for the first half of the book. And starting in Acts chapter 13, they focus on Paul and Barnabas and the Gentile churches that were based on the Antioch model. And the Antioch model became the model New Testament church. 
So that's important to understand because right from the beginning, a Hebrew culture was invading a Greco-Roman culture. Now, the, there's lot, lots we could talk about with Greco-Roman culture, but I just want you to get one concept. It is often said that the Romans conquered the Greeks militarily, and then the Greeks conquered the Romans culturally. Okay? When, as Rome arose and as it began to expand its empire, it militarily conquered all the empire that had once been conquered by, by Alexander the Great and had, and had broken up after his death into four kingdoms. All of those had what was called Pan-Hellenic culture, that is predominantly Greek-thinking culture. And the main aspect of Greek-thinking culture is that reason is preeminent. You find truth by reason. You can't trust necessarily your senses, and you can't trust revealed truth. What you can trust is, is accurate logic and logical thinking. And there's why if you're as Greek-thinking people, you study disciplines like logic, and you learn what fallacies are and what's a proper argument and so forth. Okay? So as the Hebrew culture, uh, as the, after the Romans conquered the Greeks, the Romans adopt, adopt, adopted Greek culture and Greek philosophy. And in fact, there's very few great Roman thinkers that you study in history in comparison to the great thinkers of, of Greece, especially in Athens in the 4th and 3rd and 4th century B.C. So that, that's important to understand because the difference between Hebrew thinking, Hebrew thinking, if it doesn't translate into doing, then, you're, then it's not real. In other words, in Hebrew thinking, if you love God but don't keep his commandments, you don't really love God. Simple as that. Jesus said that in John chapter 14, verse 15. He who loves me keeps my commandments. And then he took it a step further, six verses later in John 14, 21. And he says, he who loves me uh, and, and uh, will keep my commandments and I will be, uh, and my father will, and I will disclose ourselves to him and dwell with him. He's saying that if you love God and you keep his commandments, it can only come out of loving him. We get that backwards. We want to do performance-based things and go, I got to do better, I got to do better. What you really got to do is, is meditate on the grace of God. Ask God to conquer your heart and make you a prisoner of love. I always say, God, cause me to know how much you love me, so I'll love you back and cause me to love what you love and hate what you hate. Cause me to love those you love and hate those you hate. So uh, that's a great thing to pray every day. I pray that every day. God, God, conquer my heart with love. Paul actually introduced himself uh, three times in his letters as a doulos, which means a, a, a bond servant who's chosen to serve his master because he loves his master. Uh, bef and he called himself that before he called himself an apostle. So then... What I want to just say is this, is, is that as the second and third century moved on, most of Christianity began to have kind of a, uh, a dynamic interplay, which was a good mix between Hebrew thinking and Greek thinking. Okay? But the basis of it was the scriptures that had, in the New Testament even had been, even though the New Testament was written in Greek, it was written by Hebrew writers. If you don't... Uh, 
understand that as you study Greek and so forth, you'll miss the message of the New Testament, which is what happens in, mo in modern times. We primarily miss most of the message of the New Testament because we are Greek thinkers. Now, in 1054, officially the East and the West split. They had been splitting for, de for centuries before, and frankly, the split wasn't complete. Uh, in, you know, I could go into the history of that, but we don't need to. What I want you to understand is the result of that. In the East, there predominantly became a concept called mystery, where when you took concepts like God foreknows, predestines all things, and man seen, is told to choose, choose you this day, whether you'll see sing the Lord, you know, serve the Lord. That is irreconcilable. And the Eastern approach to that was, isn't that awesome? Don't we have an awesome God? Let's just worship. <laughs> Whereas the Western approach was, let's analyze every scripture about it and try to define that as accurately as we can and so forth. And it led to things like the Calvinist Arminian uh, controversy, which has divided and harmed Christians for centuries. The Council of Dort, the Calvinists wrote somewhere near 180 points uh, explaining why the Arminians had it wrong, because Arminianism, as it, which led to Wesley and led to evangelicalism, is very heavy on man's uh, will and, uh, and has shades of, of a thing called Pelagianism in it that, that was considered a heresy by the early church. Whereas the Calvinists had, uh, are much more big on the sovereignty of God and the, the awesome attributes of God, and therefore man's will, you can't actually choose God, even though the Bible tells you to choose God, it's his grace that causes you to choose him. So um, I talked a little bit last week about the forerunners of the Reformation, uh, but when as the Reformation came, the print, one of the five principles that John, John did a series on the five principles of the Reformation. Is it on the website? Uh, Emily will be putting it on the website someday, and uh, you can listen to it. But one of the principles of the Reformation was sola scriptura, by scripture alone. Now, uh, one of the things that, that we need to understand about scripture alone is basically this, is Christ is looked at as a living word. Christ is the Word incarnated. And it has always been the idea of Christians that there's a living Word tradition that continues by the Holy Spirit in the church even to this day. Jesus said, I will build my church. But the written inscripturated Word is our check against that living Word because every, Jesus himself is the living Word. And since Jesus' ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he is active in his church, but he is active in a church full of fallen people with mixed motivations and limited amounts of knowledge. So uh, even the leadership of the church through the centuries doesn't always get it right. Therefore, we need to always measure the living tradition against the scriptures. And that be, how, how that plays out became the fundamental issue, one of the two fundamental issues of the Reformation. Okay? Now, um, Luther and the other Reformers talked about, um, in, in German, it, it translates to English, 
their their idea was that you need to interpret the scripture in a literary way. And what they meant by that is the scripture gives us all kinds of different literature. There's the first 17 bo- books of the of the Old Testament are historical. But then the next 22 books are are poetical and prophetic. And they use different types of literature, Hebrew poetry, apocalyptic literature, metaphors, images, and word pictures, and so forth. So um, you need to, when you're reading scripture, you need to understand what type of literature that book is. If Now, when Darwinism began to arise and higher criticism began to take over the Protestant church, many Christians began to react against that. However, an idea was introduced and became very predominant that's done much damage to the evangelical and fundamentalist movement. And that idea was because the higher criticism and the um, social Darwinistic ideas were coming out of universities, universities and knowledge were not to be trusted. And so right from the beginning, the evangelical movement began to embrace kind of an anti-intellectual view of studying. This is documented by many evangelical scholars, such as uh, J.P. Moreland and many, many others. Francis Schaeffer, uh, you know, many, many evangelical scholars have, have the, I, I read a quote last week from, uh, from, uh, John Bright's book, The Kingdom of God, about the loss of Bible reading among Protestants, especially among evangelicals and fundamentalists. Now, it's interesting because evangelicals and fundamentalists held the the rallying cry was Scripture alone. But it has become the least uh, serious about the study of Scripture of any movement in the history of the church, simply because there's a deep distrust of academic activity. And the evangelicals began to split off to inform their own universities instead of recapture the universities that were under attack by the social Darwinist and the and so forth. They began to retreat to their own monasteries, or so to speak, that is the modern Christian university. Now, that may not sound very important, but what 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 it it what makes it important is that what began to uh, emerge is what historians call the modernist fundamentalist controversy. And the modernist fundamentalist controversy was simply this. The modernist, uh, again, the social Darwinist and the, and the higher critic, the ones who mistrusted the authority of Scripture, they'll, they'll, you'll see, if you're listening to a modernist, he'll say, well, Paul only wrote six of the books attributed to his name. We know that because the others don't match in style, so they must have been written by one of Paul's disciples like Timothy and Silas. They have no historical reason. The church never thought that in the early centuries. The people who knew them never thought that. They're just basing that. It's really a very prideful thing. It's it's what the Greeks would call hubris, a pride that kills you, but you're blind to, which we all have. But it's basically saying we know better because we're modern. And uh, even though no one in the first, second, third, or fourth century wrote, uh, caused these questions to be arisen, and they actually knew Paul and Timothy and Silas, because we're examining the text and we see stylistic differences. Uh, well, what if Paul actually had, was actually well-educated enough to write in more than one style? 
Now, I'm looking out on this room here, and I know most of you pretty well, and I see at least five or six people who are well-educated enough to write in different styles, probably closer to 10 people who, uh, if, if they wanted to write in a certain style, could, and if they wanted to change the style, they could. <laughs> so, I, you know, a lot of, when you really get down to what's called higher criticism, if you want to study that movement at all, uh, there's a book by Gary North you could write down. It's a very short little book. It's free online, and it's called The Hoax, H-O-A-X, The Hoax of Higher Criticism. It's kind of all you need to know about higher criticism, frankly. So, um, as the, the fundamentalists began to rightly react to this major attack on the fundamental ideas of the Christian faith, they did so in a climate of anti-intellectualism and unfortunately an anti-historical climate. They said scripture alone, but by that they meant our modern paradigms of scripture alone. They didn't say, let's go back and see through the centuries how godly Christians had the paradigms they used to study scripture. There was kind of a, uh, it was almost like you were, it was a ship anchored uh, at the dock that they'd cut the ropes and let it float out to sea. Let's just view scripture from, from our modern perspective and not put much value on what, what others. And this idea began to emerge that the first century church was to be trusted, but no other centuries of the church were to be trusted. The second, third, fourth, fifth century were, you were, were all declined, and by the fifth century they were totally lost until the Reformation a thousand years later. The problem with that is this. Jesus said, I will build my church, and he promised to always be doing that. And therefore, there are always some, like, like we mentioned last week, Elijah said, Lord, they've torn down your altars, they've persecuted your prophets, and I alone am left. That's kind of the attitude of the, that began to develop in evangelicalism, fundamentalism. We're the ones that have it right. And the Lord said, I've reserved 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. There have always been... Uh, miracle workers in the church. There have always been apostles. There have always been evangelists. There have always been people who had wonderful insights that we need from scripture. We need to know who the Moravian brethren were and how they viewed things. John Wesley, probably the, in some ways the, the grandfather of evangelicalism, was a diligent studier of the writers of the first seven centuries, what's known as the apostolic fathers. John Wesley believed that it was most important to study those things. So after the Civil War, that kind of idea began to die in light of there's, there's the church of the first century, and then the God is, and we're the true remnant that God is restoring, and we're the ones that, when Jesus says, will there be faith in the earth, we're the ones that will fulfill that and so forth. And there was a little bit of pride in there. And pride always leads, Obadiah 3 says the all, all pride that we all struggle with always deceives us. We're all deceived by pride to one degree or another. The journey of the Christian life is Jesus says, if you abide in my word and my word abides in you, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. We're all on a journey out of darkness into truth. And as we, as God reveals the word to us, as we fall more in love with him, as it becomes more than just academic theory, as we experience the living word and live the word and do the word, 
we begin to come out of darkness progressively into light. That's the journey of the Christian life corporately as well as individually. Now, that's a lot to say to say this. Here's, I, you know, I may end up on this a few weeks because this is very important stuff. And I, I, want to, I want us to understand it to enough degree that we understand why we have a hard time reading our Bibles as serious as we, as we need to. Because these ideas will cause you to not see the Scripture as a whole. And therefore, what, what's happened today is most Christians know the Gospels a little. They know some the epistles a little, and they know the wisdom literature, maybe Genesis. But very few Christians know the whole Bible cover to cover, unless they went to Dominion Academy and took Pastor Wayne's Bible survey class. <laughs> uh, so, oops. the... Uh, so let's let's look at uh, some of these uh, ideas that have developed, and I'll get us. I got about ten more minutes, so I'll see how many I can get through today. The first one is that reason be, uh, became reason versus experience. Now, the Bible, uh, the idea that developed is that uh, you can't be experientially based. In fact, one of the main criticisms from evangelicals against the Pentecostals and charismatic movement. And of course, in the 19th century, frankly, the Christian Missionary Alliance and the Nazarenes, they were very on fire, crazy, excited worship, very experiential oriented, and they were attacked as being too experience oriented. And like Galatians 5 tells us, the, the last recipients of moves of God always become the persecutors of the current moves of God. That, that just is part of how it's what happens historically. As, as a movement hardens into more theoretical views of truth, it begins to say, you guys are too emotional. You're too experience-oriented. You're too emotionally based. Okay? And especially if there's outward expressions of emotion during worship, such as clapping or shouting or lifting hands or or many of the things that the scripture tells us over and over to do, <laughs> uh, that's considered, oh, dangerous. I actually had a, a guy who's uh, in our church now, very on fire for baptizing the Holy Spirit, loves God growing. He he was experiencing the presence of God deeply at uh, at, at Jason's house once on a Friday night and, and stopped because he said, oh, I began to feel all this joy and excitement, and I didn't know if that was safe because that's how he'd been taught. Believe me, uh, if if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it'll flood over into your emotions, to your intellect. You'll see, you'll understand things better. You'll sense peace, joy, inner healing. Whatever things will happen. Uh, laughter. There have been many documented cases where someone got filled with the Holy Spirit and just began to laugh, and uh, for no explainable reason. And sometimes that can be very healing. The, the Bible even says in Proverbs that laugh, laughter is medicine for the soul. So uh, the Bible is not against experience. In fact, the Bible is simply this. It's a history of people who had experiences with God that opened our mind to understand God, and then they wrote it down. The Bible actually starts with experience. In Acts chapter 10, Peter gets this vision of unclean animals coming down to him, and the Holy Spirit says, you know, arise, kill, and eat, and make a long story short, it helps him 
get past his prejudice and go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, which the Old Testament all along said would happen in hundreds of verses, not just a few, hundreds. I'm not exaggerating to say hundreds of verses tell us that in, in Abraham, all nations will be blessed. The gospel will be for the Gentiles, for the coastlands, etc. But he couldn't see that until he had an experience with the Holy Spirit that opened his eyes to see what was in Scripture all along. Now, the balance is simply this. If your experience opens your eyes to see what you've been missing in Scripture, that's valid. If it opens your eyes to, to something that's not in Scripture, that's not valid. I had a dear, sweet lady come to me one time and said, Pastor Greg, the Holy Spirit, this is back in the 80s. Maybe it was different than more drugs or something. I don't know. She, she goes, Pastor Greg, the Lord has shown me I'm supposed to marry this man named Charles or whatever. And I said, okay, that, that, tell me more. She goes, well, there's a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? She goes, well, I'm already married to someone else. <laughs> and I said, you really need to understand that that's not the voice of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and she was dead serious, you know, and, and we're not permitted to shoot her and put her out of misery or anything like that. We have to love her and work with her and, and uh, so forth. Uh, I was like, oh, Lord, I hope she goes to another church. No. I'm just kidding. All right, so um, the, the, the difference, for the idea that reason is against experience and experience is against reason is a false dichotomy. It's just not scriptural. In, on the GCF website that John wrote, he wrote about orthodoxy and orthopraxy that right thinking leads to right practice. And the way it's supposed to work, Scripture is the eternal plan of God unfolding in the experiences of God's people, and those experiences are written down after they're interpreted by the Holy Spirit to the writers. That's simply how it is. You should use Scripture to see how sub-biblical your experience with God is. Because all through the Bible, it talks about denying the flesh and so forth. So if, you're, if you have fleshly habits or fleshly addictions or whatever, you should use the Scripture to see that's not normative Christianity. And God doesn't want that for you. He wants to set you free. And he wants you to, to seek him for whatever is needed to be set free. And take whatever, flee youthful lust. Take whatever extreme steps are needed to, to win. Like So what we do today is we, we read the miracles of Jesus and so forth, and, and, and we, in our Western naturalistic unbelief mindset, we explain them all away. Oh, that was for the apostles or something like that. There's no scriptural reason to do that. That's just our spirit of unbelief being more powerful to determine what we get out of Scripture than what the Scripture actually says. That's a paradigm we have of unbelief. That, that causes us to miss the point of Scripture. So we need to use reason in Scripture to say, God, my, as, I under, as I read in Ephesians about God tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and so forth, and then I look at our churches and I say, oh my God, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. 
you know, by, by government law, blacks and whites have to go to the same schools, work in the same places, etc., but they don't want to worship together. Well, that needs to make us cry out. We need to get on our faces and say, oh, God, help us, because our Christianity is nonsense. You know what? I don't care about this. I'm going to just say this. I, I want to, you know, I don't use these kind of words often, just hopefully to make a point. It's bullshit. Our Christianity is bullshit. When blacks and whites don't want to be in the same churches and don't want to worship together and don't want to live among each other and intermarry and raise their kids together and, and go to the same picnics. Jesus didn't die for that. God doesn't, that never intended that. Some people will get on me about how, how I'm so, why I'm so passionate to build an interracial church. Because the world, Jesus said this, God, make, make them one so that they may continually know that the Father sent the Son. Americans will never take Christianity seriously as long as we have uh, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America. And God gave them the right to, to do that. The world instinctively says your Christianity is nonsense because you can't get along between socioeconomic classes. Show me one mega church that's not in the suburbs. <laughs> that, there you go. There are a few. So, New York City. Let's go there. Uh, amazing work he has done there. So, uh, we need to use reason and scripture to measure our experience instead of to excuse our lack of experience. That's all a man mindset of the paradigms you take to scripture and say, God, help my experience. However, we need to have powerful, powerful experiences in worship and the presence of God to are prophesying and the Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy, the scripture says. We, we need those kind of encounters with God. For some people, you need that daily. When you're first trying to break out of fleshly habits and worth, you need to just worship for an hour or two every day. You really do. Sing in tongues and sing in English. And if you know any other languages, sing in French or whatever you know. Uh, you worship the Lord until you're flowing in God's spirit. And you'll start becoming the person you were always created to be. Because you become like whomever you worship. If you worship your nice sports car, you'll become shallow and worldly and consumer-oriented. If you worship the Lord, you'll become like him. Uh, it's late, but I'm going to try to do one more. The second one here, and we'll, we're going to continue on this next week. However long it takes, we're going to get through this material. Uh, pietism. The good versus the Gnostic. In the 1830s, uh, a lot of Christians began to say, gee, uh, the Reformed traditions, especially the Presbyterians and the Anglicans and, and the Lutherans, they all have... Uh, come to America, they've built communities and churches, they've prospered, they've done business, and eventually what developed was kind of a cold orthodoxy, where church, men would even go to church more to make business context, and, and because you were, and, and they actually would sell pews, and, and those who had the most money got the most prestigious pews, which is exactly what James, the, the epistle of James says not to do, <laughs> and so forth. So there became a movement of Christians uh, known as pietists, 
who said, we need to get back to things like spiritual disciplines, like Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline. Hope everybody in our church has read that book. Um, it's a good one if you haven't read it. The Celebration of Discipline. We need spiritual disciplines. We need to be passionate for the Lord. We need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be worshipers in spirit and truth. The church needs to be purified uh, about our spiritual life. Now, all that is well and good, but eventually it went too far to the point that we began to understand spiritual is about my personal spiritual life, not about a corporate expression. And spiritual is what I do behind in the closed doors and, and in the church. It has nothing to do with the real world of business and politics and so forth. And actually, after about the 1890s, Christians began to gradually, fundamentalists and evangelical Christians began to gradually retreat from the world of politics because it was dirty. Okay, now... What pietism in its extreme forms, which you find in some Pentecostal and charismatic groups, will live. I know Christians that have, let's say they've grown up with some emotional problems, broken home, uh, different things that God could heal in the in a context of a Christian community where there's healthy families helping you to, to mature in your emotions and be discipled and so forth like that, like the Bible teaches us to do. What happens in pietistic Christianity, and this is very common among charismatics and, 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 and Pentecostal churches, um, you, your, work, your spiritual life, you go and worship and have a great time, and you read the Word a little now and again, but it never translates over into your work ethic, how you manage your money, uh, how you raise your kids. It never translates over to real things. And because you're in an impersonal church, no one ever helps you learn how to translate in, into real things. So 40 years later, you enjoy the presence of God in worship, and your life's a, a wreck that looks like a, a wrecking ball just went through it recently. Now, that's a, that is the reality for thousands and thousands of Christians in this country. That's why I don't care that we're small, and I don't care. You know, when we started this, I've, the Lord spoke to me and said, are you willing to do something that people won't understand or respect, that they'll in fact even hate until long after you're dead and your spiritual sons have taken it over? It's not easy to understand what we're trying to do, and it's offensive to most people at the, at the first hearing, because we're trying to put flesh back on spirit. 